calling Army Hammer a leading man wouldn't do him justice. Army Hammer looks like a Greek statue got bored and left the museum to get a tan. GQ magazine once called Army, so handsome it must be a joke, and shaving cream commercial handsome. And after he starred in 2013's The Lone Ranger, the director Gore Verbinski said having Army on set was like witnessing a man out of time, like seeing Gary Cooper walk into a supermarket. Friends say Army is warm, fun, and casual. So casual, in fact, he almost comes off like a teenager with how willing he is to joke about personal issues. Interviewers have said talking to Army means having a refreshingly earnest conversation. His co-star, Timothy Chalamet, once said he's a rare example of someone who presents himself as they truly are. A rare quality indeed, especially around Hollywood. Army's dress style is impressive too. After starring in Call Me By Your Name, social media pointed out the casual button-ups and denim could have easily been cribbed from Army's real-life wardrobe. Summerwear from Ralph Lauren and Giorgio Armani. Casual blazers and jackets without the tie. White, open-collar button-ups. Army grew up in the Cayman Islands, which is reflected in the wardrobe, which looks like it's perpetually on vacation. All this to say, if we showed you a stack of mugshots of five random offenders and slipped Army into the lineup, you'd never believe he'd belong with the others. Especially if we told you one of them is under investigation for sexual assault involving allegations of sexual grooming, branding women's skin, carving his initials into Instagram models, and telling girlfriends via text he wanted to remove their ribs and eat them. You'd never pick out Army. Nobody would. There's no way that this guy's being serious. But he like really like he would always say like I really wanted like I wonder what it tastes like. I bet it tastes good. Looking back, it is now clear to me who is employing manipulation tactics in order to exert control over me. During those four hours, I tried to get away, but he wouldn't let me. I was completely in shock, and I couldn't believe this. What I loved did that to me. Which is why when the Instagram account House of Effie started tweeting screenshots of Army's supposed cannibal sex texts, the entertainment world had a meltdown. Here are a few of those messages. I want to see your brain, your blood, your organs, every part of you. I would definitely bite it, 100%, or try to fuck it, not sure which. If I put you into a vegetative state, I'd keep you, feed you, wash you, and keep you. So hard, thinking of holding your heart in my hand and controlling it when it beats. I am 100% a cannibal. I want to eat you. That's scary to admit. I've never admitted that before. I've cut the heart out of a living animal for and eaten it while it's still warm. Army also sent sex texts about rape fantasies. Both ones he wanted to act out and ones he'd already performed with partners. And he's talked about how standing over his then-girlfriend while she cried on the floor was the most powerful he's ever felt. All of this could be seen as an extreme kink behavior. A little more wild than Fifty Shades of Grey, but still within the realm of fantasy. That was until 
the other exes began posting their stories of non-consensual encounters, of being cut with knives, branded, enduring embarrassing forms of sex and borderline torture, and perhaps worse, a specific style of sex grooming which started with chivalry and love bombing and ended with army demanding promises to be a sex slave. The surprising part isn't that the leading man is capable of depravity. The surprising part is that if he had been more self-aware in his public appearance, he could have gotten away with it. Just like his father and his grandfather and his great-grandfather. You're listening to The Reengineered You. This is a podcast about self-empowerment, all the myths, lies, and misconceptions we tell ourselves. Then, we use science and history to bust those myths and re-engineer a better you. I'm your host, Todd Laments, The Extrovert. And I'm the writer, researcher, and introvert, Joe Anthony, whose job it is to dig through the outer layer of Noda on the internet. We live in a world with a new, dominant law. A law you won't find in the Supreme Court rulings or Congressional Library. The new rule is, he who wins public approval gets rich. Corporations have long known about this rule. Companies pay top dollar for savvy agents to redesign tainted public reputations. After the documentary, Super Size Me, ruined McDonald's claim to being even moderately health conscious, they began dumping money into programs to wash their greasy public image clean. They phased out supersized portions, added salads to their menus, launched ad campaigns like Every Step Counts, and gave away pedometers. If a company has operated more than 20 years in the U.S., chances are they fought public opinion. McDonald's responding to critics by offering more healthy options. The CEO of McDonald's who says he went on a daily McDonald's diet and actually lost weight. YouTube is populated by attractive teenagers who have bought mansions with their streaming dollars. Politicians with charming smiles get elected in spite of terrible voting records. As a podcast about self-awareness, you might think the re-engineered you would have tackled the subject of public perception. But today, for the first time, we're covering myths about public appearances. Miss Army Hammer should have known about before sending those texts. Myth 1. We have a word for people obsessed with their own appearance. They're called narcissists. Surely we don't want to become narcissists. Myth 2. Why does Army Hammer's story surprise us? What is it about attractiveness, charm, and wealth that shuts down our creep radar? Myth 3. How do we gain healthy awareness to how the public sees us? Is it even possible? Or does contemplating our appearance at church or work automatically make us conceited? We're going to get to our myths. But first, I want to tell Joe about the severity of Army Hammer's accusations and why this might not be a simple case of angry exes seeking revenge. First things first, how the heck did you find out about that documentary coming out? And I, I, and when did you hear about Army Hammer? Because I'm, I'm interested to hear when he landed on your radar versus mine. He landed on my radar. I was watching a Saturday Night Life skit. There's a, there's a woman that does a skit on there. It's a it's a regular one where she she pretends she's a teenager and she rates movies like she has her own YouTube channel. Okay. 
and she did this part about Army Hammer and about they were asking her if she thought he was attractive, and she like flipped out, and she made such a big deal about it. So I so then I looked him up because <laughs> oh. I don't watch I don't watch a lot of movies. I read a lot of books and I watch a lot of sports, but movies is not really my thing. And then I kind of followed him a little bit, and I saw him. What my perception was him because he was in, in, a, in a, some movies that were you know winning a lot of awards. Was he's like a real serious you know. Juilliard level actor, you know, real serious. I, I didn't think of him as like a pretty boy, um, Hollywood hunk kind of guy. When did right. you find out about him? Well, I I found out about him. Um, I never saw Call Call Me by Your Name, and that's that's his serious role. That is his like, you know, very dramatic, yeah. broke back mountain, won awards role. I heard about it last year, and it was just a, a blip in the news. I I was like, oh, the Lone Ranger guy is tweeting about being a cannibal. <laughs> And it just, it, it fell in one ear and out the other. If I had looked into it and realized how his family and, and how, you know, interconnected and, and strange and, and interesting this was, I would have dug in. Like, it, it would have been the thing I was obsessed with that week. So I'm really glad we kind of took a took a beat and, and looked at it. Um, the, the story of his life is more fascinating than these local, char- these recent charges. Sounds like it's been going on for a while. Um, that that's a good way of putting it, was, it. I don't know if you heard the audio of these. Have you heard the audio of these? No, I listened to an interview with House of Effie. Like I've listened to a couple of his exes speak about it, but um, no, I didn't hear the audio. They have them, and you can actually listen to to his voicemails. They are absolutely creepier, and I don't mean creepy in like a in a, like a Hollywood horror kind of way. In a very realistic, this guy's got serious control emotional issues should not be on the streets with the rest of us <laughs> right yeah it, it's so reading them's one thing but when you hear him say it in his even you know actor voice it's it's kind of scary i guess yeah uh, like with yeah he's got that vocal training so like it, it could be extra creepy hearing that come from him uh, uh okay so we don't want this episode to sound like we're trying to teach army hammer how to become a master of public appearance like we don't want a monster to get away with things what we are focusing this episode on is we want to talk about you know how did his family get away with this and he didn't that is the comparison we're making is so anybody who saw the title public appearances and was like you know is (laughs) is this monster a master of public appearances no he's not army hammer to me strikes me as kind of a teenager who couldn't control his impulses and his family did, and his family got away with such insane things, like we'll find out. Um, but I kind of want to start by asking you, like personalizing this and asking, how much, Todd, do you put into your public appearances? Uh, I, I think I I, I kind of struggle with this myself because I feel like sometimes I'm a fraud and I'm a lot friendlier to the people who aren't in my inner circle, like yourself, that... So I'm, I I think I I kind of want to I try to see parts of me in this and I think sometimes I'm very outgoing and very open and willing to help people who are outside of my circle <laughs> and right. I think the only reason I do that is because that's part of my what public image what you're talking about uh, whether it's spending time with people um, or, or helping them with creative projects I think sometimes I'm friendlier to the people that I want to impress than I am to the people that I should <laughs> be trying to impress. Okay, so how um, 
we'll we'll put it on some some metrics here. Let's talk um like how much time you spend getting ready to go out, like appearances it, physically versus like how friendly you are versus like how you dress, like like how and and what you plan to say. Like how much goes into you know, let's say presentation, appearance, and, you know, uh, manner. Because I'm in sales, I, I dress a certain way every day, a consistent way, the way that I think is the most likely for people to say yes to me. Um, I say the same things. I, I, I've practiced the same word tracks at work and, and in my um, in my personal life, too, things that I've been funnier people that laugh at. I use that same material over and over. <laughs> so, so it's nice when I meet somebody new, so I could I could give them all the material I have, and I've got forty eight years of it. What about you, Joe? I used to think that I didn't care about appearances whatsoever. Like I'm, I'm kind of like, I thought I was more like the the crazy professor. Like I, I would go around in a bathrobe and. As long as I could work on, you know, my my stories or or whatever subject I was working on for that day, I didn't care. But I had a good friend of mine point out, he's like, no, you put a lot into your personal appearances. He's like, you you dress not, you know, you don't dress in tuxedos, but you have a standard style of dress that gives the right appearance for a, a writer. He, he pointed out a couple you of do. things that, yeah, you I does. realized that. You see, yeah. I could see you in like Greenwich Village in New York because you dress kind of like Steve Jobs. You know, I I could see you with like a pipe or something. I swear to right. God, <laughs> I'm no, not making no, this it's, shit up. <laughs> it's it's, it's like, accurate, yeah. right, Joe? <laughs> right. It's 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 polos and it's it's a certain type of pants. Yeah, I'm, I realized I was quite picky about how I dress. So, I, I I look down on like soccer moms or church moms who really really care what the neighbors think, but on the inside their family's kind of rotten. Or, or bosses who drive, like, you know, drive amazing cars and dress really well, but they're really terrible people. But I realized I wasn't getting angry at them because what they put into their public appearances. I was getting angry at them because their appearances didn't match their, you know, their mood, their, 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 their verbal presentation, what they said. So I realized that I held incongruity against them. I didn't hold their appearances against them. So I... I I don't know what your take on that when you meet somebody who is like put so much into their public appearance and it comes off as fake. Like, do you do you do you hold fakeness against somebody? I think you can see through it. I think sincerity shows. And, um, you know, we live in a part of the country where you don't dress up. Right. This is not that kind of area. This is not right. Southern California, New York. People don't. There's not as many hot shot acting hot shot looking. But there is some more hot shot acting i think and like oh i'm i'm so smart i'm so successful that i can do and act and say whatever i want and just be real jerks you know <laughs> i think we see more of that like <laughs> i don't care fuck you kind of attitude <laughs> you know right. i'm awesome don't you think we get a lot of that my the texas, other one's so yeah yeah my my texas in-laws said that was um oh, what was it like rei chic we're we're kind of being a little bit shallow about public appearances right now for humor, but it's it's a good place to start because that's what everyone thinks about. Everyone thinks about, you know, isn't public appearances, isn't that shallow, isn't that narcissistic? But really it serves a much, much bigger cause, and that is basically um, giving the public a persona of you. And that seems to be what ARMY's family did best. 
So can we can we get a little bit into Army's grandfather and where this insane reputation came from and why they're able to get away with this kind of stuff? What was interesting about this, and I've I've been my whole adult life, Joe. I've studied biographies, and I just find famous people fascinating, just the, the lives they've had. And when I read about them, I feel like I kind of share in some of that experience. And Armies goes way back, though, not just to his grandfather. We'll go back to his great grandfather. When I say we go back, of just very extreme, um, dysfunctional criminal-like behavior. And what's funny to me, when I think of generations where there's still wealth and powerful families, don't you think, Joe, of the first great-great-grandfathers and great-great-grandmothers as being conservative, hardworking, depression generation, <laughs> you know? And then they make all this money and then the rest of the family fucks it off for the rest of their lives. <laughs> right, or I assume that they, you know, somebody up the line made CEO or did something amazing and very niche to make the money, and then the rest of the family has just been scrambling to hold on to it, kind of like the you know the Kennedys. Right. Um, we'll go back to his great great grandfather. He was a doctor. His name was Julius Hammer, and he got himself in some serious um, criminal legal problems. He he gave it a, a Russian diplomat, a, a wife of one, an abortion, and she passed away. Holy so he got shit. convicted. He's a doctor. He got convicted of first-degree manslaughter. And he was sentenced to three and a half years in, in Sing Sing Prison, which is a rough, rough prison in, in New York. Sing Sing in, in the 1920s? <laughs> How far back are we going? Yeah, it was back in the day. <laughs> okay, so that um, sounds very dangerous. Yeah. Uh, and then, so then his his so his son, Armand, who would, would have been Army's great-grandfather... Or grandfather, his grandfather, Armand, he moved to L.A. and he actually married a rich woman. So that's where they really got the start. So he didn't have anything, but he got this money from he. She married a, a very, very wealthy woman named Frances Tolman. This was in 1956, and they started a. Um, they took over a failing um, petroleum company, and then business just boomed. <laughs> okay. So we're talking about a great grandfather. Like our our model for this is somebody up the line in the family worked very hard, got themselves into a position to make money, and this is like no, no, no. They just did scandalous stuff, married wealthy people, and took over a company that is dubious. <laughs> okay, that's, that's exactly now. Now his now his uh, it's hard to follow all this father son stuff. <laughs> I'm doing the best I can. Okay. Okay. His son was Julian. Okay, Julian got in trouble for killing a person at a at a underground casino. So it was early morning hours, and it was in 1955. Um, and this man got killed in his house over a gambling debt. So this is like an, either an underground casino or a poker game gone bad. And and so the front page of the of the newspaper, the daily newspaper, said millionaire's son kills GI. And what Armand did to get his son out of this was, I guess he delivered $50,000 to a lawyer in Los Angeles. And then the charges were dismissed. So in 1955, <laughs> $50,000 is a lot of money. So he killed a dude. <laughs> and got away with it. Killed a GI. <laughs> like, not just a dude. Gambling with a vet and, like, draws on him and shoots him dead. 
Okay, so so yeah, for the rec- okay, so this is Armand and Julian. That's great grandfather and grandfather there, and they're covering for each other and paying off lawyers and shooting people. So we're going from like 1900 now of this dysfunction. So we got the one giving the abortion going to prison. Then we got the one just kind of con shyster traveled all over the world, um, marrying into wealth. And now you got a petroleum company. <laughs> you got Julian, who's just an absolute. They call him. They they refer to them as just being interested in being playboys, and that they won the sperm award for being born rich, and they they liked all the trappings of being rich kids, and none of the things that work. Of course, they hold positions at this this petroleum company, but most of their time was spent in uh, driving fast cars, chasing after women, drinking, and doing drugs. Okay, so. Now, I want, I want to paint a picture about how dysfunctional this was. So, when the great-grandfather Armand, Forbes had his, his, his wealth estimated, Joe, at $180 million when he died. Okay. Now, he died 30 years ago. But with the day he died, families, cars, five different cars from different family members pulled up to the mansion to start looting the place. <laughs> 30 years later, there's still people, ex-mistresses, who were promised things. Um, vendors, people he was in business with, untold business partners, are still trying to get their money back because there was that many different lawsuits and scams going on with his family from that many generations back. 30 years, they're still not resolved. They're still hot and, and, and in court as we speak today. So... Granddaddy Armand dies, and it's like a giraffe dying on the savanna. Just everyone comes to take a piece, and their jackals are fighting lions, and everybody's trying to drag off the the biggest hunk. And everything, all the promises that he had made to people were all off. The people thought they were getting a lock on nothing, and then vice per, vice versa. <laughs> okay. Now the first disturbing, disturbing sexual thing came from Army's father. Um. He, he had this thing where it was like a, a, a throne that he sat on. And he'd have women chained up next to him with holes where their mouth and different parts of their bodies were. Okay, so uh, this is um, Michael Hammer, the um, the grandson the of Armand. So this is... This yes. Is, yeah, this is it goes, Army's it goes, actual father. It goes Armand, Julian, and then Michael, correct? It goes Julius, Armand, Julian, Michael... <laughs> Okay. Okay. <laughs> and now army. <laughs> wow. Okay. So by the yeah. so we we're, we went from um, <laughs> a lot of we, sex. We went from the, the. I was just gonna say like like the great grandfathers were. We we go from uh, ambitious starting petroleum companies with wealthy uh, spouses' monies, and now we're we're three layers of playboy philanderer. Um, you know. Car driving, so we're 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 three layers in of uh, um, entitlement, basically. And we're getting weirder on the sex stuff. It's getting more controlling and more bondage stuff as we go as we goes along. And I don't know if that's because of pornography or you know or just being reported, right? Now it's I want I want I think this is a good point to make, Joe. Is is Armand, who is who is the the man who started the big petroleum company and had all the real success was ultra, ultra critical of everyone in his family. He was very, very big on their public appearance. He was big on if they wore, if, if one of the women or kiddos wore a dress to a party, 
he would never let them wear that dress a second time. He, how they kept themselves, how they talked, how they communicated was extremely, he cared very much. He had a, the guy was worth $180 million in the olden days, but he cared about how every single member of his family was perceived publicly. Okay. So needless to say, he wouldn't approve of Michael having a sex throne with a head hole so somebody could poke their head through. Not if everybody knew about it. Not be taking okay. pictures of it. You know, what I mean, he must be thinking, "What the hell's wrong with these stupid great grandchildren of mine?" <laughs> right. Okay. You do whatever you want. Just don't make any. Just no evidence. You know. Right. You can shoot a GI in a poker game. You just have to look good the next day in the public eye. Army's habit of oversharing and like almost like a teenager saying whatever pops into his head that it seems like the rest of his family despite them getting wilder and wilder they still held public appearance like it it looks like to me the father grandfather great-grandfather they all managed to hold that together they they still looked good in the public eye the pictures of them by the way are crazy immaculate if you look up the army uh, hammer like the the hammer family they look yeah. amazing. Like they, they look like royalty. <laughs> so they, they really do. They really do. And you can tell in the period that everything they have on is 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 the most expensive thing, even though it might not be in style. Yeah. You know, right up to the, you know, back in the day, his great great grandfather they had jets. You know, the great grand grandfather flying jets before that was kind of a thing. You know, so. <laughs> right. It, it looks like a whole family line of Tony Starks. And then you get to Army, who is posting on Instagram, uh, like like he, like he's posting frizzy hair morning and like crazy looking drug face, and like he's posting pictures of his kids sucking his toe. Like he is posting the dumbest, craziest stuff possible. Like you know, a, a kid bored at, at home, and this is just flies in the face of everything his family's been doing for the past you know hundred years. Well, and I think we all, everyone in their family has that person that says whatever. And thinks right. it's okay, and it nobody likes it. It's it's offensive, and they you know you you, <laughs> you, you get you get uncomfortable when they're around because you know it's just a matter of time before that bomb goes off. Yeah, you know this kind of reminds me of the the depravity between father to son to son to son. It kind of reminds me of clones. Like if you clone somebody, and then you make a clone of that clone and a clone of that clone, like they get more flawed every time you make a clone. It's that except yeah. for sexual depravity. It's this guy was just questionable. This guy put people in a, a sex throne. This guy threatens to be cannibal, like cannibalize you and, and eat your ribs. Like it, it just keeps getting worse. The the next one down. <laughs> but so okay, so so we're gonna get into could uh, Army Hammer have saved his reputation, which is probably a really dumb, obvious yes. But we want to talk about like would that make you a narcissist? Like if Todd and I. If we started caring way more about our public appearance, like we didn't just have our, our, you know, you have your sort of like sales like, you know, set of clothes, and I have my uh, artsy, you know, wise writer set of clothes. We're both kind of putting it on there, but if we cared a lot more, is that narcissistic? Um, do you do you remember an episode where we talked about the mere exposure effect, as far as like, you know, getting people to trust you and believe you? Oh god, it's been a while back. I don't remember it. Refresh my memory. Well, we I don't remember exactly which uh let's see. Oh, okay. Well, we had a we had an episode where we talked about how attractive people are more trustworthy. And Yes. 
it it kind of people are a little more forgiving. People are more forgiving with people, so you don't have to worry too much about your first impression. Right, exactly. People want to like you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that's right. It was our first impressions. Uh, our episode about first impressions, and the big shocker for me was, yes, your um your looks and your appearance matter, but not exactly in the way you would think. It, it's more about. Um, you're projecting a higher socioeconomic class and you're projecting with that comes, you know, uh, you're generally thought to be more uh, capable. And then just people seeing you over and over again, um, it leads to the mere exposure effect. Yeah, Yeah, it's kind of like how propaganda works where they they see you multiple times. They start to sort of mentally incorporate you into their tribe just because of, you know, exposure. And eventually they, they trust you. And that's kind of how politicians work. Like they're the reason why politicians pay so much for ads, it's just to get their face in front of you enough to where they, they become part of your 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 monkey sphere, your 150 people, your Dunbar number. Um, I think of that too, like the olden days, Joe, with like real estate agents would wear these kind of tacky green or gold jackets, bla- blazers for the women, suits, and they had a certain look that they're going for. And what that look said was professional. You know what I mean? Right. It's like consistent professional. So I want it, I want people to trust me, so I need to look this way. And we see right. it with politicians where they have the, the certain people that tell them how to do every little thing. It's just, I'm laughing because it's, how do we fall for this stuff? You know what I mean? <laughs> right. It's, if, if I can't personally put my face in front of you because I don't want to spend the ad dollars to make you see me 10 times a day, then I'll just look like a guy you voted for before. <laughs> <laughs> like right. it's funny it, it it works in uh like that's like almost like the alchemy of personal appearances you know if you can't be the person they see to to activate the mere exposure effect to see them over and over again you can just look something like what they've seen before and they'll they'll trust you by proxy um but the big question for today is todd and i don't necessarily want to be those narcissists who bank on their public appearance who who spend so much time worrying about what other people think of them but we do want to know you know would that make us more successful like do yeah narcissists... i want to know, know if we get yeah the trappings i want the trappings of those things though i want to be yeah. i want to hit my ceiling and still be sincere if it's possible okay <laughs> well it may not surprise you to learn that narcissists who um th- there's a there's a couple types of narcissists they, they're categorized down but um somatic narcissists are the ones who are mostly um, obsessed with their own personal image and how people are perceiving them. And it probably won't surprise you that the Journal of Personality um, published a study about how narcissists earn more promotions at work, and apparently they do this by acting like they're already in charge. <laughs> oh, no. They fake it They fake it till they make it. I hate that. I hate that saying. I hate when people say that. Yeah. Uh, there's... There's a couple elements to like fake until lunch- you make it. Go ahead. I like the Joe Anthony blue collar lunchbox. I'm just going to keep showing up and putting producing, and I'll get promoted. You know, that's that's true. There is a a small element to fake it till you make it in just showing up. Like it's it's pretending like you're ready to do it. But yeah, the people who are truly faking it till they make it, um, part of that is is you know empowering yourself and and repetition there there is an element of honesty in faking it till you make it really but if you're a true narcissist then um you believe you deserve it just simply because you're you um uh, the hallmark of narcissism is they feel a sense of power and so when they're on the job 
in turn because they feel a sense of power, they project it, and uh, hiring managers believe it. Like, like it. Uh, well, I'll just sort of tell you about the study, actually. Um, so this came from uh, two studies. Uh, the first one was in the Netherlands, and they interviewed 200 supervisors. And then um, Britain did a follow-up peer-reviewed study because they were like, well, we want a piece of this, and we need to make sure that our narcissists aren't getting jobs. And they found out that supervisors rated their employees' promotability. Um, and, and the second time they did this study, um, they completed measures of self-promotion, like um, please rank them on how often your employees you know, make their accomplishments known to their supervisors. Um, they rated them on uh, ingratiation, like how often they feign interest in the supervisor's problems. And sense of power, that's a big one we're talking about. The extent that they feel they're in charge of the decisions among their you know, work team. And uh, to quote the study, although narcissists have excellent social skills are in, and are adept at winning people over, this charm wears off on people. Like, that's why in our personal lives, we can't stand narcissists, because eventually you figure out they're a narcissist. You, you figure out that that charm is just hiding their sense of ownership over whatever they're doing. Like they're not. And they never share. I think that's what it is too. They, whatever yeah. it is to share, they don't. They don't share the attention, the credit, the the money, the whatever it is. There's right. <laughs> there's a there's a sense of just being treated unfairly. Isn't is that's encouraging, right? That these sons of bitches aren't going to be able to do this to us anymore. Well, <laughs> not <laughs> or, exactly. Or we're stuck with them. <laughs> okay. Be- because the the people conducting the study said that in a small social setting, people catch on to their narcissistic behavior in in a small setting like if you have a narcissist friend you eventually get tired of their shit and you stop hanging out with them however in the workplace uh quote narcissist sense of power and self-promotion leads them to be handpicked by supervisors despite their negative traits <laughs> so in personal lives we kind of shun narcissists once we figure them out but at work they get promoted faster they get promoted more often and the skills they're projecting are exactly the skills that almost hiring managers across pretty much all corporate boards are looking for. Um, so their promotability is high, what? and thus their so, earning power. So that would is be higher. a good. So so I could look on. I could look on Indeed, and, I, and if I wanted to get good employees or good leaders, I should say, narcissist. Please apply. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, looking for narcissists. That's might as well. Okay. I'm going to I'm going to go out on a limb. I'm going to I'm going to be Jeff Fox worthy here for a second. If if you are looking for somebody who is throwing out their own sort of like welcome mat everywhere they go in front of them, uh you might be talking to a narcissist. Um and of course we've we've talked about just self-empowerment generally in past episodes. Like we've talked about how, you know, uh to feel empowered, you take a superman pose, you you put your fists on your hips, you 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 know, raise your chin. These are all things narcissists basically do uh, automatically. And not only that, but the rest of their behavior falls in line. I'm going to give you one last quote from the study that I thought was very interesting. Uh, Being seen as a narcissist means behaving like one. By acting as if they have more power in the group, they write, narcissistic employees can be seen as staking their claim to leadership, which appears to get noticed by their supervisors, who may later grant them formal leadership through a promotion. So when you said earlier, fake it till you make it, I almost didn't want to spoil the rest of this article. But yes, that's exactly right. They fake it, supervisors see it, and then supervisors, like, you know, uh, knight them. They they bring out the sword and they knight them, you know, into the positions they are pretending to be in. 
Well, and I can see when you see a new employee, too, and you see someone who's taken such ownership, that would be attractive to any, you know, any senior management CEO that you have these people that are willing to treat the business as if their own. They just don't know that their agenda. <laughs> right. You can't see their their real agenda is to take over and, and, and get everything. <laughs> get rid of you, too. <laughs> right. So when you, when you tell me the, the uh, Hammer family grandfather didn't have any, like, business doing what he was doing, like, he, he just you know, married into money and use that money to run a petroleum business. It's like, yeah, that sounds like a narcissist. They they all sound like narcissists to me. So we we don't want to entirely focus on on Army's family. I mean, they're super interesting. And, you know, there is a documentary coming out about them uh, that'll be called House of Hammer. Um, but we're we're more interested in kind of like these tweets and specifically what the heck is up with army <laughs> after you read those i they're so wild i i got to know like he must have been abused as a child like like something happened to him right or is it just like entitlement like affluenza kid um it's interesting you know the one thing i took away we did a, you know the prep for this for this show and we studied all this stuff and i know more about him than i've ever cared to know about him but uh, one thing that keep kept coming up in all of the interviews with him from people who are in Hollywood who are used to beautiful people, I'm talking about supermodels and producers and directors, they all talk about how drop-dead gorgeous he is. And yes, he's attractive people like most movie stars, right, Joe? But yeah, there's just something different about him. I think if you see him in person, you faint like it's like a Michael Jackson concert, you know? <laughs> he's that good looking. Because I heard it's just over and over, you just heard one person after another who was already good looking like, wow, no, this guy's at a different level. <laughs> Have you so, have you ever like toured around Hollywood like driven through there? Oh yeah. It's just everybody walking like everybody at a restaurant looks like a, a actor <laughs> like everybody looks yeah. so attractive and then this guy is being picked out by these directors and and being praised. It's crazy. Uh, but he had just his his childhood was he was definitely definitely wealthy. He grew up on the Cayman Islands in like a mansion estate. And I want to give you an idea how powerful and rich his family was. Um, his grandfather got a painting of uh, Gorbachev, the president of Russia. It was given to him by Gorbachev. <laughs> There's another narcissistic thing. If I ever give you a, a portrait of myself <laughs> and say, <laughs> but it tells you that he was um, he was pretty tied into the government, right? The Russian government. <laughs> Uh, okay. Well, yeah. If you get a painting from a tyrant, from that tyrant, that's that means even if you claim to not have money, you've got something. So he grew up on this this Cayman Island, it, and it was a re, it was like a resort. So he has the jungle. He has the ocean. He says, growing up, he grew up like a tree climbing Tom Sawyer. He had a machete, and then after he moved out of that and moved to Los Angeles, he really felt uncomfortable. So you go from this country boy millionaire kid um he did make some comments about you know that um about his allowance and stuff and i think rich kids just live in a different a different um of course there's a different social class but they say well we just got an allowance just like everybody else it's like well yeah but you got <laughs> right you're also on private jets you have vacations you have clothes you have food like the the normal kids would never <laughs> you see so many things that normal kids wouldn't right uh, i yeah it, army hammer complains that he 
had to get an allowance like every other normal kid, but it's like, yeah, but you never had your, you never listened to your parents get in a fight over who's taking half medication that month because they can't afford, you know, full doses. Yeah, I have, I have a, an uncle who's very successful in Boston, and my grandmother would send, she has three grandchildren from that, from him, and um, she would call me and she said, well, they're not cashing, I sent them their birthday money and they don't cash those checks, and I say, Grandma, they don't need your twenty dollars. That's not even worth. It. <laughs> so right. even as kids, they didn't cash those checks because it's just a different. It's a different social class. So now, after he's in L.A., he finally starts to get into acting, um, and he had success very soon. I mean, he he was starting to get roles very very soon for a family that wasn't in the in the film business, and that's what I really went into this. I always assumed that they were somehow. Um, connected already to some kind of movie stars, right? Don't you always think that? But this yeah, wasn't the case. He, go ahead. I was gonna say because I, almost every really known actor I hear like their, you know, their their father was an opera and their mother was a playwright or something. Like there's always at least some tenuous connection to to acting. Now, what shocked me about this was this Playboy family of badly behaved males. They were not supportive of him being an actor. <laughs> they kind of look down on him, and and I find that really weird. I mean, it's like that's how dysfunctional. Like, why would they give a shit? I'd be proud of my son if he was an actor. They were until he started to have success, which makes me think that a lot of love in that family was extremely conditional. Joe, that's what it sounds like. I, I think it's hard to believe he had a role in two thousand eight. He was uh, he was playing Billy Graham, a young Billy Graham. <laughs> that just seems like. <laughs> miscast i don't know but of course he was the handsomest person doesn't that give you an advantage if you're the best looking person in in the planet for anything yeah it it seems like a miscast. <laughs> i mean we're not just talking kind of cute here joe <laughs> um this gets kind of weird too so now we're getting into um some of his wilder stuff starts to pop up. So he starts to get some fame. Now, what comes with a lot of fame? Well, a lot of attention, good and bad, right? Yeah. Um, one thing that really kind of disturbed me, and there was a lot of them, the one he talked about is, uh, and one of his friends said that this kind of struck him as well. He said all the things he did to, he's talking about sexual things he's done with women. And he says, I've never, ever tied a woman up. I've only done that to mannequins. And he'd done that with mannequins a lot. <laughs> and I just think that's weird to tie up 25 mannequins in your life. Don't you think that's weird, Joe? A little bit. Like, we we will get into uh, kink and consent in the second part, or in, in our next part. But, yeah, that isn't... If you walk into somebody's house and you just see a bunch of, like, roped-up mannequins, there's going to be questions at least. <laughs> Right. Uh, now, I just want to talk about some of the things he said, um, and I can't do it as creepy a voice as he he can, but I'm pretty creepy myself. This is one of them. He said, "This is one of the one of the voicemail texts that went out." I am a hundred percent a cannibal. Fuck. That's scary to admit. I've never admitted that before. I've cut the heart out of a living animal before and eaten eaten it while it's still warm. There's another one. I want to see your brain, your blood, your organs, every part of you. I would definitely bite it. 100% or try to f*** it. Not sure which. Probably both. Another one. 
if I put you into a vegetative state, I'd keep you, feed you, watch you, and keep fucking you till you are so sore and broken, I can't stop thinking of fucking your actual brain. Good Lord. Isn't that, f- this is horrible. What, you know what I mean? <laughs> it is so I, weird. I'm so glad we're laughing about this because this would be genuinely chilling and frightening to hear it in a any voice. Like any, you keep, yeah, you keep saying creepy. I'm wondering if he thinks he's being sexy. Like, he, doing... does, he doesn't sound creepy. He sounds just like a read-through of an actor. You know, he just sounds like... Huh. It's, it's just really, really weird. Yeah. I guess one of my first questions is, obviously there was, like, trust between him and the women he's been sending this to. Like, he... I mean, like, he's so open in interviews... Do you think he didn't think he was going to get caught, or do you think he just didn't care? Like, like the interviews he's been in, I mean, like he he blabs to any interview with the talks to him, and he he seems really open with his friends. Like Timothy Chalamet is like this dude will share anything and is the realest person you'll meet. Do you think? And then I think that I think that's tied into what we've studied before in some of our other episodes about manipulation, and, and this this is how it works. When you when you do that in an interview or, or in all your affairs, you know, with you, I said Joe just tells it like it is. You know, he's honest. Well, that that develops what trust. I know that everything you tell me. So what Army Hammer does with romantic, and I don't know if he does it with his friends and stuff, but he does it with his romantic things. He showers these women with attention, just love bombs them with with romance, pulling them t- and hugging them in front of other people, getting on a knee and talking sweet to them in the restaurant. So they they start to become very attached to him. And then, and they trust him because he is so blunt and honest. This is someone I can trust. But then he uses that later to get his sick fantasies and get whatever he can out of them. It's just a process that he does, and he's been doing it for years. So it's so then the they most- end up being used, embarrassed, humiliated, scarred emotionally and, and physically for life. Yeah, the the most beautiful man you've ever seen tells everything like it is is the most open they can be is the showers you with the most attention you've ever gotten and this is all leading toward they've been practicing branding and cutting people <laughs> and that you know it's hard to compete yeah and he's famous yeah. too not on top of that too he's famous and he's rich and he's i mean that's a lot of whatever so that's what's attractive 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 you know <laughs> right it's almost like he doesn't have to do this you've but got he the, still wants the well it sounds like the the most balanced polar opposites you've got the most positive attributes in a human you can get to balance out the darkest shit that somebody can have in their their kinks um okay so let's uh, i kind of want to i don't know if i'm jumping the gun we might be going too far forward here but let's talk a little bit about um like consent and kink play because that's something that kept coming up while i was reading about this is there's a lot of the internet that is basically talking about this like this is horrific and strange, and it it doesn't matter how you slice it, talking cannibal makes you a crazy person. But there's also a portion of the internet that's like, no, kink play is a thing now. Uh, consent is the biggest part. Like, like you can, you can talk any fantasy you want. It could be as dark as possible and as evil sounding as possible, but as long as it is just fantasy, it's okay. I don't know if I truck with that, and I don't know if you do. I was going to ask, like... You know, can you be extraordinarily dark mentally and excuse it by saying it's just fantasy as long as you keep it in that realm? Um, no, I, I, I think it's I think it's um, unhealthy. 
I think that people say, and I've just never been into that kind. I've never been that into pornography or or into anything that's just not normal. I, I guess what I consider normal, and people say, "Well, that's just what, that's you and this and that." But I and I see this kind of stuff of slavery, humiliation, bondage. I don't see that as um, I see that as one person enjoying and that flirting with very very unhealthy thoughts. Does that make sense, Joe? Oh, it, it makes total sense. Um, what do you think? We will we will put that in basically the Puritan camp, and I don't use that in a derogatory way. Um, my thoughts as a writer who writes fiction, I will entertain any dark thought that comes through my head, but I, I try to label it and put it in its proper place. And if anybody else... I mean, like, this goes for... We, we started this episode by comparing this to... You know, some people say this is basically Fifty Shades of Grey, except way more extreme. I will simply say that, you know, um, I, I believe what psychology says, which is there's a healthy way to express your fantasies. And it is not roping somebody in by love bombing them and then doing things without express consent every step of the way. The The fact that he would groom them for this kind of behavior to, to enact these fantasies and wouldn't check on them. Like, there's there's so many complaints from House of Effie and from these other girls where, like, they would pass a certain event horizon during one of these scenes that he was enacting, and they wouldn't speak about it. Like, they, it would last... One of his texts says something like four hours, and they shut down. Like, they mentally had shut down. They stopped responding verbally. They were just crying and, and in a mess. And so it's like, yeah, that is that is so far beyond healthy consent that... It doesn't matter what your fantasy is. In my opinion, you've you've passed over into criminality. If if these are just if these aren't just allegations, which it doesn't seem like they are. Well, and I I I, I don't know if we're all say equals or or people. I, I think when there's a status of being famous, you get away with things that you can get you can manipulate people. There's a baseball player called Trevor Boyer Buyer whatever. And he was meeting women on Instagram. He plays for the Dodgers. He's a multi-multi-millionaire, famous pitcher. And he's taking these women out and choking them unconscious and beating them up. And and what what's shocking to me about it is, is how he kind of, he, do, he doesn't think he should get in trouble. He doesn't even know he's doing something wrong. You know? Okay. And it's like, it's, it's, it's kind of scary, right? You know, like he just thinks that's okay. You know? Right. Even though police are being called, even though this, it's still not registered. It's still that the, I should be able to do whatever gets me excited, thrills me, you know? I I think you just bizarre. stumbled into the exact answer. I, I think the, you just answered this whole podcast, which is this is somebody who, like, whatever is thrilling to them, they'll justify what it takes to get there, and it's okay to them because they feel good. And that... That so firmly lands into the narcissist category for me. Like it, I think that could summarize everything. So, well, if you let's say let's say you're you live in Los Angeles and you're an up and coming actress, and then wouldn't you be attracted by the fact that this person's connected, this person's famous, you're getting attention seen around them, just as a, a move? You would probably do things that you wouldn't normally do if it was someone you just met back in your hometown, right? Oh, absolutely. How many of these girls are like, yes, I'll endure some, you know, like they may not be into bondage, but they're like, yeah, he can tie a rope around my ankle and I can endure that because he's connected and handsome and 
you know, extraordinarily successful. And then how far does that go? Like, it just keeps going further and further and further until one of the pictures is he carved his initial into a woman, like a, a little A on her hip or something like that. And this is like a model. Yeah. So it's like that immediately affects her career, I think. Yeah. And it, <laughs> branding, right? Right. <laughs> oh, boy. So let's do this the healthy way. I, I do want to, I don't want to get through an episode and just have it all be, well, here's what it looks like to be a monster. I do want to talk about, like, if we want to focus on public appearances and how to present ourselves and how to, um, you know, you're not going to make yourself more handsome by wishing it, but you can certainly show up and, like, appeal to people's approval without it being a narcissist play, without it being uh, a grooming like he's doing. Like, you, you can do it in a healthy way. So can we, do you want to discuss the the healthy way to self-monitor? Yeah. So, um there was it was about the 1970s there was a psychologist named mark snyder and he was kind of the first one to start talking about the idea that people who look really good and act really good and and you know have a lot of high public appeal um they're not necessarily narcissists but they seem to like have something called like self-monitoring like they seem to be able to zoom out almost like it's a video game and see themselves in third person and they can see how other people react to them and they can see how they look to other people. And this is something everybody does innately. Like, this is a, um, a skill everybody has and does unconsciously. But some people seem to turn it on and off. Like, they turn it on and they, they can, you know, they, they go about more of their day looking like that. Like, for me, uh, if I'm at home, I am wearing a bathrobe. I am dipping the ties of the bathrobe into the toilet. I'm walking out in flip flops <laughs> to gather the mail. I, I'm now feeding chicken, so I've got you know chicken uh, <laughs> shit spattered up to my ankles. I don't care until it's time to go to like uh, a meeting or you know a boardroom. Then suddenly I, I, I have to clean up, um, and I I don't you know I'm, maybe I'm flipping boogers across the room right up until the moment I walk into a boardroom, and then suddenly I'm I'm on my best behavior. People who are high self monitors, they're looking at themselves from the time they wake up. They are zoomed out in third person, monitoring their own behavior basically all the time. And That's Mark Snyder, so they're like watching, they're watching a movie all day long of themselves. So they kind of said, "No, no, stand over there. You, know, you got to change your shirt." <laughs> right. Exactly. You're good at it, right? They get good at it if you do it all the time. <laughs> that's that's exactly right. That's that's my point. Is is this is not just a a narcissism strategy. If you do it consciously, you can get good at it, really good at it. Like, um, you know, you, you can become a better speaker, better presenter, better everything. But most people view this as a, a subconscious skill or even worse, they view it as conceited. They, they view it as something that is like, oh, that'll make you a narcissist or, oh, that'll make you, you know, self-obsessed. And in reality, it just makes you a better presenter and it makes people like you more. We talked about the mere exposure effect and, and how you look to other people. The more you self-monitor, the more you'll just do these little corrections that will make you... I mean, like, okay, let's look at what Snyder says the self-monitors do. They say things at social gatherings to get attention or approval from others. They they entertain people better. You know, they find it easier to imitate the behaviors of others. We talked in earlier episodes about code switching and about um, presenting during a job interview. Well, that's very important. If you are more practiced at it day to day, you'll be better at an interview. Um you're better at seeing advice from other people and you you're more able to put your mind into what they say and think and wear and do 
and you're better able to win approval from others and win favors from others. So it really kind of like roundly affects all of your abilities within the the realm of self-awareness, which I didn't expect to read about in this article. When I first started reading about Army Hammer and how to improve public appearances and how to like, I, I guess, polish a turd. I, I did not expect to be like, oh, this is a cornerstone of self-awareness, and it's it's very important. Um, so a question this I have for you. a tough one, because a lot of this is good self-awareness is a good habit to have, too, right? We, we see this in public speaking. Um, Joe and I are both involved a lot of things after work, and there's a lot of narcissism in public speaking. People just want that floor. Like, they can't get enough attention at wherever and their family at work so they're like we got i gotta get more attention i gotta <laughs> right so that's the important part to me is when i when i i, I was going to ask you about this to extract the two you and i go into um public spaces public speaking we do presentations but i'm doing it for improvement i'm oftentimes there um as an introvert uh this is something they say in the the research Ex, uh, um, introverts with social anxiety like myself self-monitor because we're uncomfortable in social settings. We pay a great deal of attention to how others look at us. And we I mean, like I have hypervigilance, which makes it difficult for me to relax around large groups. So I just through repetition have built self-monitoring into me so that I can be more comfortable around other people. You are an extrovert. So I assume that you're doing it because you enjoy being well-liked. And, and you are getting an emotional benefit from it and from teaching yourself to, to do this better. Yeah, I'm the opposite. I get so excited when I'm driving down. I can't wait to get through the door and get talking and get seeing people. Like It's almost, I, I compare it to a, a kid who's counting days to Christmas when you're little, you know. <laughs> right. I get that excited. Even today, even in groups that, yeah. yeah so it's, it's, uh, it's exciting for me. So, so you and I, I think, fall into the healthy realms of self-monitoring. We're not doing it because we think everyone needs to hear our voice, although we are recording a podcast right now. We're, we're more doing it for self-improvement and for enjoyment, genuine enjoyment, and to, to make ourselves less anxious, if you're me. Um, but the, the narcissist would do it simply because they think they deserve the attention, not because they want to earn it or to get better at, you know, presentation. Um, I think that's why we have problems working with some people on speeches is because they really don't want to change. They think the way they say everything is perfect. Yes, and precisely. It's, it's, yeah, it's really weird. And, and it's, even if we try to show them evidence and and they came to us because we have a certain skill set, but they didn't. I won't even say it's not listening. I think it's just not believing. I think they yeah. really honestly believe that they know best. <laughs> Through throughout Todd and my time uh, public speaking, we have both mentored a lot of people, and that is an extremely common experience. As a mentor, is you walk somebody through. I mean, like like I, I've I've got awards in speech writing and and writing in general, and I can tell them point blank, your speech is boring. Uh, your your material is good, but if you just reorder it slightly, it's going to be very exciting, and they will just completely ignore that. <laughs> And you realize they're doing this for attention. They're not doing it because they believe they need to improve anything. They're doing it because they... And nobody needs to take my advice on anything strictly. I, I just... I've, well, I've... No, but when you, seek out, when you seek out experts who are professional writers who have shown, shown that they have a history of success in this, and, and you set them out 
but not to improve yourself just to get validation that right. <laughs> that's what they want they just want you to say they're perfect and, that's it. and it's not you can't you would if you could but it's right uh, and there's the um this is the so in self-monitoring they kind of call this behavior um there's there's acquisitive meaning you're, you're trying to acquire something through self-monitoring meaning you're trying to get approval you're trying to get attention um or there's a positive acquisition to self-monitoring which is you're trying to assess the reactions of others and adjusting your behavior so you can get status or power. Or you do it like I do it, which is protective self-monitoring. You you go to a speech and you deliver, but what you're really doing is you're trying to learn to prevent your own embarrassment and rejection. <laughs> like we, you, you go and you present because you're trying to practice not being ostracized by saying the dumb thing. Um, and when we talked about self-awareness this being a cornerstone of it it really is like uh, from the research they say that you can use self-monitoring to change specific behaviors so first off let's let's just focus on that for a second if you're a parent and you realize that you are being too harsh or too nice or you're too much of a pushover for your kids or whatever i mean like you we are not just talking about you know the business world or you know um presentation I mean, literally every element of your life can be helped if you start learning to self-monitor in critical moments. Um, we did an episode once about um, Lord Byron and bad relationships, and the Gottman Institute recommends self-monitoring when you are you know, being too harsh to a spouse or you need to achieve that golden ratio of saying five positive things for every one negative. Your self-monitoring is critical to finding out when you're saying a negative thing. You have to notice it when you do it. So you have to be able to flip that switch and go into third-person mode and see yourself being negative. Um, self-monitoring helps self-awareness. It develops greater awareness for other people. It improves interpersonal skills. I mean, like, it, it, the list goes on. Like, it, it, when we say cornerstone of, of self-awareness, it really is. Like, you, you develop self-awareness quicker with self-monitoring. It helps you identify target behaviors, and you can really pick the way you are going to behave in the future. In fact, that is when we when we talk about here's some actionable stuff for us. Um, you know, we're we're not going to learn from Army Hammer being a monster. We don't even want to learn from his parents being able to hide it by using self monitoring. The healthy way to self monitor is to you know make an actionable list. Like here's a behavior I want to change. Todd, I would like to be less of a pushover in front of other people. Um, so I'm going to self-monitor for when I apologize for no reason, and I'm going to self-monitor for when I give people their way when I know morally I shouldn't. And well, Isn't that a quick quick guide, Joe? Of if, if, if you're trying to get people to do things for you as opposed to just trying to improve yourself and be a better person or you know present yourself, it's not the same as just trying to get more things out of everybody around you. Yeah. It, that's that's what we're saying is it's not just a way to juke everybody out of things. It's it really it's a way to make yourself um, a, a better, more effective person. Um, and after you identify a target behavior like I just did, you choose a way to record it. Um, mental notes. Use your phone. Like like literally, take a moment and turn on your phone and be like, I just gave in to my boss and I didn't mean to. I just apologize for something I didn't mean to. I was too harsh to my kid and I didn't mean to. Um, write it somewhere. Uh, do something. And then once you have gotten in the habit of A, targeting that behavior, 
and then recording it, then you can set a schedule. Um, you can sort of pick and check in and write down when you're going to be self-monitoring and write down specific activities or what you're doing throughout that day when you, you know, have those moments. So if we want to sort of take a frown upside down in this podcast episode, for me, the, the money really is in figure out how to self-monitor, make an action plan for the behavior you want to change, and then, you know, start following through. Like, like it's not, it's because it is such an action thing you have to have a plan in place. It's not like you can write a goal or a vision board for this. You really just have to pick and choose behaviors and then plan when you're going to zoom out and turn on that mode. I like that zoom in and out. I can kind of see myself thinking that out loud and say, let me zoom out on this here and see how I'm, 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 how I'm treating the people around me and am I communicating properly? Is it time just to kick back and listen or is it time to time to take the lead? I I sensed that our our man here Army Hammer was doing that like there there's a there's a moment in these articles where like things are going really bad and like he spent a year in lockdown last year and it seemed like he started to do that like I I saw in like a in his text he started to sort of reflect and I was thinking he's zooming out he's going to get this self awareness and then he just bailed on that it seems like so let, can we can we talk about how things escalated for him Things escalated with him. The big one, one he, he kind of prides himself on being just a super dad, and that's another way he's perceived is is just as a great father. Like you said, the Instagram post and just you know he's not someone who's having his kids raised by by nannies. He's doing it himself. And during um, the COVID lockdown, he was on this Cayman Islands resort. Of course, these people act like they're kept in prison. They say, "I feel like I was in prison." There are all these resorts that we couldn't right. afford to visit for a day. <laughs> <laughs> with more land space, every food, beautiful people. I mean, shoot, when you're Army, you don't have to have beautiful people around. Just go look in the mirror, you know, if you're feeling Todd, kinda... <laughs> could you imprison me on the Cayman Islands, please? <laughs> and so he runs away. He, he gets stressed out and he can't handle it. Um, I, I think there's probably a lot of drug use involved in this, and that, that's not reported. It's just my drug use so through the years of my party, the years I'm seeing a lot of these these very compulsive and... <laughs> and uh he, well he, he brags about it. he brags about there being benzos in his system and thc and you know so I'm, he, there's drugs use right. <laughs> he sent out like a, use. there's a text like saying that his his body was a fine-tuned drug processing machine or something like that uh, it's, yeah yeah it's sarcastic <laughs> i have benzos in my system but who doesn't you know kind right of thing. very it's, college smart ass yeah but so he leaves his wife there and his kids and he goes he goes out and that's when he gets divorced and that's when things start really start heading south um, he starts dating, and that's when all these these stories start coming out. And so he's trying to work, but all this bad press finally, it's over. You know, they they just he's not a leading man anymore. He's all this bad press, Bill Cosby like bad press is has, right. has destroyed his career, and and his his movie career. No one's gonna. I mean, everyone's kind of whispering about him and. And directors, producers, everyone just wants to stay clear of him. They don't want any trouble, you know. And, and we say he's not that good looking, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> I it's it is interesting to sort of like how much bad press do you have to get to to make the uh, what do you call it um, the the Calvin Klein model on the bag unemployable. <laughs> Like that's pretty bad when you're the most handsome man on earth and and nobody wants to touch you. 
And I'll just tell you how he kind of lost touch with reality here. You know, here's here's a couple of things he said in in um, he he talked about this in the media to to major magazines. One of them was uh, this is him talking. One chick tried to stab me when we were having sex. She was like true love leaves scars, and then she tried to stab me with a butcher knife. Now the funny thing about it, he continued to date her after this for seven months. So they, they were like a thing. And then he's on he's on social media talking about being fond of bondage, okay. And then he's in, talking to Playboy magazine um, that he likes to, to to he's into bondage and tying knots. And he did the same thing on Stephen Colbert. So he was so clueless. I mean, one of his managers or representatives should have said, "Hey, let's talk about something else. Let's talk about your your next movie. Let's not talk about bondage. It's just there." So he was also insulated with some some friggin' morons. Who lost their meal ticket? Right, um, and and again, it seems like not much of a filter. No filter. Three year old. He just if it's in his head, he takes it out. And the more vulgar it is, the be- you know, the better for him. But not only did this destroy this, it's destroyed his reputation. I mean, he he's now uh, they say penniless. He went from having a worth of uh, forty million, hard to hard to estimate the family value, but it's been reported now that he's in the Cayman Islands. Selling timeshares. Um, <laughs> they put his face on a flyer. I mean, he's trying to feed his family. He's living. He's living the Cayman Islands to be close to his kids. Right. Um, they put him on a flyer at the resort and said, "Oh, let this guy give you a tour." And, it, and it's very unflattering. You know, it's very sad. <laughs> we have the <laughs> handsomest man deserves. on earth selling our timeshares. <laughs> Yeah, let him take you wind sailing. That's amazing. I've I've sold timeshares. I know what a shitty fucking job it is. Okay, it's not fun. Right. <laughs> it's beneath pretty much anyone. It's very tough, straight commission. You know, you're kind of selling snake oil kind of thing. Yeah, it's, it's kind of slimy. It's a, it's, it's, a, it's a fitting it's a fitting end for him if this is his end. Right. Well, I it's it's weird that I'm I'm okay with that. Like I I, I know it's kind of like made him the butt of a joke online. Like, all the articles that are, like, talking about him selling timeshares are almost doing it tongue-in-cheek, like, making fun of him. But I, get a real job. I'm okay with that. Like, that that actually makes me kind of happy. Yeah, it's respectful than, than to be holed up in one of your grandparents' house somewhere or something, right? Right, yeah, yeah and sitting on a painting of Gorbachev, yeah, smoking your family cigars. Yeah, I, 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 I like that. So, just for, like, a, a cool little follow-up, I went looking for um, his great grandfather's uh, company, um, Occidental Oil and Petroleum. It's now known as Oxy, and it was in the news two days ago because Warren Buffett um, got permission to buy a majority stake in Oxy. He he got a permission to buy fifty oh, percent wow. of that company. So it is still, so still relevant, a- still big today. Yeah, all these years later, isn't that something? It's yeah. I just thought that was wild. Warren like, Buffett. Warren yeah, Buffett. Warren Buffett. See, see, see some promise there. He wouldn't be doing it, right? Yeah. So if you're wondering, you know, how powerful was the Hammer family? Really, really powerful to the point where Warren Buffett's buying their company. I, I think. I think a good lesson that I want to. I want to close with is um, love bombing comes. It's not just romantic, right? So if you have someone who's who at your new job just loves you to death and does all this, and then you notice that as soon as that's turned off, the switch is turned and it turns to manipulation. Beware. You're living with, dating, working for, working with a true 
narcissist. Well said. In the grand scheme of history, Army Hammer's story isn't a new one. A stunningly attractive male from a successful family grows up to be an artist and feels entitled to act out his darker fantasies on the people around him. Comparisons could be drawn to Errol Flynn or Lord Byron, and they wouldn't be out of the ballpark. What sets Army Hammer apart from his father or grandfather, who suffered almost no consequences from their actions, is that Army appears to be a low self-monitor. He broke the cardinal rule of being wealthy in the public eye, that how you appear often matters more than what you do. Narcissists self-monitor because they want power and they're hypersensitive to how they're perceived by others. Extroverts self-monitor because they want to be loved. And anxious introverts self-monitor because they don't want to be ostracized. All of these may sound like negative reasons to follow a good practice. But as we've discussed today, self-monitoring can be a conscious habit. It can be healthy, it can be practice, and it can be the cornerstone of your success at work and in your friend group. Practice it with purpose, and the world can be your oyster. Ignore it, and we may be reading about your demons in magazines someday. You've been listening to The Reengineered You. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You mean the world to us. We have a new episode every week. You can connect with us at www.re-engineeredu.com. That's where we have research links, show notes, feedback, and blog articles for each of our episodes. We're not experts in anything, but we've got an opinion on everything.